Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings and the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Over the last few weeks, I've been stuck in 1990, as that year marked the re-release of what many consider Stephen King's masterpiece to be, The Stand. Well, though I'm done with that review, I'm not really out of 1990 yet, because not only did he publish his 1,000-plus page novel that year, he also published his second novella collection, Four Past Midnight. In 1982, King had published Different Seasons, a collection of novellas which included The Body, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, Apt Pupil, and The Breathing Method. Four Past Midnight is a structural sequel that also sees the publication of four novellas. He'll go on to publish another set of novellas in 2010 with Full Dark No Stars. Of the four novellas in Four Past Midnight, one was adapted into a TV miniseries and another as a film starring Johnny Depp and John Turturro. The two movies, of course, are The Langoliers and Secret Window, Secret Garden. The other two novellas in the collection are The Library Policeman and The Sundog. Each of the novellas are thematically connected with the concept of time. Now, this doesn't mean that King is going to be playing with time travel, though he does with the Langoliers, but rather that King was fascinated with the malleable nature of time and wanted to explore it on a thematic level. Now, just as he had done with Night Shift and Skeleton Crew before, King opens up the text with an introduction that continues his evolution of his storyteller persona. Now, if you remember, Night Shift began with King positioning himself as a Rod Serling or Crypt Keeper type figure, you know, laying the spooky stuff on pretty thick. By the time he introduces Skeleton Crew a decade later, he's much more at ease with himself. He's settled into his role and his relationship with the reader. Here he continues that relationship, not even attempting a scare. At this point, he doesn't have to live the persona the way a professional wrestler would have to. He knows what you want, and he knows that you trust him enough to give it to you. It's a pretty friendly relationship. It's 1990 at this point, and it's been five years since his last collection, since he last spoke to us like this. His introductory line is fun and friendly. Look at this, he writes. We're all here. He's treating the experience less as the spooky haunted house ride that he had in Night Shift, and more of a reunion. Maybe we're all about to go on a trip together. Maybe a plane ride. He's a man who understands that time can be perceived differently. He writes that Carrie seemed like it had just happened, but at the time of Four Past Midnight's publication, it had occurred 15 years before. Time has this funny plastic quality, and everything that goes around comes around, he writes. When you get on the bus, you think that you won't be taking you far across town, maybe no further than that, and all at once, you're halfway across the next continent. Do you find the little do you find the metaphor a trifle naive? So do I, and the hell of it is just this. It doesn't matter. The essential conundrum of time is so perfect that even such jejun observations as the one I have just made retain an odd, plangent resonance. One thing that hasn't changed during those years, the major reason I suppose why it sometimes seems to me that no time has passed at all. I'm still doing the same things, writing stories. And it's still a great deal more than what I know. It is still what I love. Oh, don't get me wrong, I love my wife and I love my children, but it's still a pleasure to find these peculiar side roads, to go down them, to see who lives there, to see what they're doing and who they're doing it to, and maybe even why. I still love the strangeness of it, and those gorgeous moments when the pictures come clear and the events begin to make a pattern. There is always a tale to the... There is always a tale to the tale. The beast is quick, and I sometimes miss my grip, but when I do get it, I hang on tight, and it feels fine. 
Now, while on the subject of time, he loops us back around to 1982's uh, Different Seasons, to which um, Four Past Midnight is a spiritual sequel. And here, more explicitly stated than in nearly any other King novel, um, where he states, or restates, depending on, and on how you look at it, his underlying philosophy, which I have made um, multiple... Um, allusions to in in the Stephen King cast. I mean, that's it's just basically what I, I say about Stephen King, where a lot of people um, won't read him because they they just they misjudge who he is as a writer. So I mean, yes, he can write about vampires and he can write about alcoholic fathers that are trying to kill their families. He can write about um, uh, possessed cars or rabid St. Bernard's or cemeteries that if you bury anything in will spit the, the, the thing that you've buried back out as, as a evil entity. He will write about all these things, but what people seem to miss that if they're not reading Stephen King is that that is not the focus of what he's writing about. Those are the antagonists. Those are the conflicts that the characters have to overcome. And it's the characters that matter in his books because the characters are the representations of his belief system in humanity. And on page 14 of the paperback edition of Four Past Midnight, he, he gets into it. Um, time, for instance, and the corrosive effects it can have on the human heart. I'm sorry, I'm going to head back just a little bit more because, like I said, he, he's talking about a little bit about different seasons. Different seasons consisted of three mainstream stories and one tale of the supernatural. Um, all four of the tales in this book are, are tales of horror. They are by and large a little longer than the stories of different seasons, and they were written for the most part during the two years when I was supposedly retired. Perhaps they are different because they came from a mind which found itself turning, at least temporarily, to darker subjects. Time, for instance, and the corrosive effects it can have on the human heart. The past and the shadows it throws upon your present. Shadows where unpleasant things hide sometimes. Uh, sometimes grow and even more unpleasant things hide and grow fat. Yet, not all of my concerns have changed, and most of my convictions, he writes, have grown only stronger. I still believe in the resilience of the human heart and the, ascension and the essential validity of love. I still believe that connections between people can be made and that the spirits which inhabit us sometimes touch. I still believe that the cost of those connections is horribly, outrageously high, and I still believe that the value received far outweighs the price which must be paid. I still believe, I suppose, in the coming of the white and in finding a place to make a stand and defending that place to the death. There are old-fashioned concerns and beliefs, but I would be a liar if I did not admit I still own them and they still own me. Um, that is just such an explicit proclamation of his belief system that he he's able to get across in his in his writing but he doesn't really come right out and say it very often so um this is I, I just think that that's a fantastic declaration of his belief in humanity um so so much of that is is has just been the basis for hours at this point hours of my analysis um throughout these episodes and he just believes in the better qualities of the human race. Um, and having written this introduction following his life-changing decision to enter sobriety, the statement itself, I mean, you can read it, it, it's tinged with hints of spiritualism and a sense of redemption. When he speaks of the white, 
you know, capitalized W. He reads like one of his own characters, maybe in the Dark Tower, maybe in the Talisman, or the Eyes of the Dragon. Statements like this, you know, help a major plot um, in the last three Dark Tower books. Um, and it makes those plot points feel natural and earned. So I will touch upon his introduction here and there throughout um, this episode. Now, I just want to talk about uh, this episode a little bit and how it's going to be broken down. So this is the beginning of what's going to be a, a multi-part episode on on Four Past Midnight. So I'm going to do a review for the Langoliers, and then I will redo, I'll do a review for the Langoliers ABC TV miniseries. I will do a review of Secret Window, Secret Garden. I will do a review of Secret Window starring Johnny Depp. I will do a review of the Library Policeman, and I'll conclude with a um, review of the Sundog. And they're all, they will all be separate um, episodes. So it's not going to be one long episode. It's going to be a number of smaller episodes. And... What I did during the different seasons reviews, um, I, I spread them out week by week. So there was an episode of of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. There was an episode of the Shawshank Redemption. There was an episode of Apt Pupil, the book, and then the movie, blah, blah. And so it went on like that and took a period of, of six weeks. I don't want to spend um, however many weeks each episode would be. So I will be publishing them around the same time, more in line with what I did with the, the Bachman Books collection. So... Um, I'm going to get to my review of the Langoliers now, um, so I'll just launch right into it. So um, before I actually uh, get to my analysis of the Langoliers, let me read the Wikipedia summary so that I will have a foundation upon which I can build my analysis. On a cross-country red-eye flight from Los Angeles to Boston, ten passengers awaken to find that the crew and most of their fellow passengers have disappeared, leaving the Boeing 767 airliner under the control of the autopilot. The remaining passengers are Brian Engel, an off-duty airline pilot traveling to Boston to attend his ex-wife's funeral, Dinah Bellman, a young blind girl with psychic powers headed to Boston for an operation to restore her sight, fifth-grade teacher Laurel Stevenson, who takes to watching over Dinah, Nick Hopewell, who initially claims to be a junior attaché and mechanic for the British Embassy, Don Gaffney, a retired tool-and-die engineer on a trip to see his grandchild, Rudy Warwick, a perpetually hungry businessman, Albert Costner, a talented Jewish teen violinist heading to a prestigious school of the arts, Bethany Sims, a teenager being sent by her family to drug rehab, Bob Jenkins, a successful mystery writer who acts as the voice of logic, and Craig Toomey, an irritable investment banker on the verge of a psychotic breakdown due in part to excessive pressure put on him by his mentally abusive father. They realize that only those who were sleeping at the moment of the event, which seemed to have occurred, whatever it may have been, are now left on the plane. Engel takes control from the autopilot and lands the plane in Bangor, Maine, for safety reasons, uh, despite Toomey's aggressive and angry protests to continue on to Boston. Upon arrival, the airport is abandoned with no signs of life. Everything seems gloomy. There are no odor sorry, there are no odors, electricity, or echoes anywhere. The weather patterns are motionless. There are rapid shifts from day to night. <clears throat> Food and drinks are tasteless, and matches simply sputter out. One by one, beginning with the sharp-eared Dinah, they soon hear radiostatic-like sound in the distance. The sound appears to be threatening and dangerous, and the group eventually reaches a consensus that they must leave before it arrives. Craig believes it to be the Langoliers, monsters he was afraid of as a child, who go after those who are lazy and waste time. 
Unable to get to his business meeting at Boston's Prudential Tower, Craig snaps, hallucinating his angry Type A personality father who tells him that the Langoliers are coming after him and will eat him if he does not get to his business meeting on time. He then takes Bethany as a hostage and shoots Albert, who escapes injury since the bullet from the gun was worn down as everything else in this strange place. Craig is then subdued and tied up by the others. Bob begins to speculate that they have flown through a time rip resembling the Aurora Borealis. The airline had earlier spotted, I'm sorry, that the airline had earlier spotted over the Mojave Desert. He postulates that the world they are in is in the past, a place, a place that forbids time travelers to observe or interfere with past events, instead being a deserted world that time and everything else has left behind. To return to their own time, Bob theorizes, they must fly back through the rip, which may still be there. However, this seems to be impossible because the plane has little to no fuel remaining and Engel insists that the plane cannot be refueled because the jet fuel is just as worn out and used up like everything else in this dead world. Albert soon discovers, by noting how much brighter the plane appears compared to its surroundings, that the plane is the only thing there that has life. He brings in matches from the terminal to the plane and after a few failed attempts, is eventually able to successfully light a match. Albert comes to the conclusion that the plane has present time, and when things from outside are brought on board, they eventually catch up to the present time. The survivors work together to refuel the plane to prepare to escape the looming static noise, eventually siphoning the jet fuel from an abandoned Delta Boeing 727 into the Boeing 767. Meanwhile, Craig, now completely insane, escapes and rampages through the airport. Believing the others to be manifestations of the Langoliers, he stabs Dinah in the chest, flees once more, and shortly afterwards kills Mrs. Gaffney. Albert disables Craig and leaves him badly injured on the airport floor. Nick comes across the scene and after calming Albert and sending him back to the plane, is tempted to kill Craig, but dissuaded at the last moment after reflecting upon earlier brief discussion with the injured Dinah who insisted Craig must not be killed as they need him. While the plane is in its final preparations to deport Bangor, Dinah telepathically communicates with Craig and persuades him that his board meeting is being held on the runway. Craig struggles to make his way outside and the hallucinations arriving at the meeting. There, in his mind, he has the breakdown he wished before his boss and the entire board of directors, screaming that he deliberately cost the company millions of dollars, ensuring his disgrace and firing as a way of relieving the intense pressure that he has felt throughout his life, thereby getting even with his father and putting his demons to rest. Craig's father then appears at the meeting table, angry and enraged. Craig confronts his father, telling him that he doesn't frighten him anymore and that he made up the story of the Langoliers just to keep him in line. Craig's father smirks at the remarks and then proceeds to summon the monsters. Two creatures, followed by hundreds more, resembling giant meatball-like monsters expanding and contracting with semicircular caves as mouths and chainsaw-like teeth, leaving trails of black nothingness in their wake, emerge from the forest and head for the plane, consuming everything in their paths. Craig flees in terror and heads for the terminal. The first two Langoliers follow him past the plane, eventually catching up to him and tripping him on the ground, making him sitting prey. Too injured to get up, Craig pleads to his father that he promises to be a good boy if he makes them go away, but the Langoliers eat him anyway. This event, much to the horror of the other passengers who helplessly watch, allows Angle enough time to get the plane moving towards the runway. In the plane, Bob offers the idea that the Langoliers are the timekeepers of eternity, their purpose is to clean up what is left of the past by eating it, and that they themselves and the plane would have been eaten if Dinah had not forced Craig out to attract them. The plane takes off, and as they turn to the west, the passengers watch the rest of the land below falling into a formless black void. As the aircraft heads back to Los Angeles, they discuss their past. 
Nick reveals himself as a specialist in the British Army on a mission to assassinate the girlfriend of a Boston politician funding the Irish Republican Army. Dinah speaks to Laurel about how her life is ending happily and being able to see everything and quietly succumbs to her injuries. Nick confesses his feelings for Laurel and his hopes of a romance with her after returning home. Albert and Bethany reveal similar attraction to each other. All the characters realize that they have considerable regrets in their pasts and that the trip through the rip has allowed them to come to terms with their actions. Bob's theory about rediscovering the time rip pans out, but at the last moment averting sure disaster, he realizes that they should be asleep to survive going through the rip again. Nick volunteers to fly the plane through, knowing full well this will cost him his life. He takes a moment to ask Laurel to pass a message to his father, explaining that he, Nick, was going to leave the business. The cabin pressure is decreased, and all but Nick, breathing through an emergency oxygen mask, falls into a deep sleep. Nick vanishes as the plane passes through the rift, leaving only his teeth fillings and an artificial knee behind. The survivors awaken unharmed with the exception of nosebleeds caused by the air pressure drop. Seemingly, nothing has changed. The plane lands in a deserted Los Angeles. When they check outside, however, the passengers are able to smell the remains of burnt jet fuel and they soon again hear a noise. It's not the ominous sound of the Langoliers, but a relaxing hum. Inside the airport, sounds echo and food has taste. Bob and Albert conclude now the time rift has brought them a short distance into the future and that this is not a dead world, but one waiting for the present to catch up. The group takes shelter against a wall to avoid the soon-to-appear human traffic in the airport. They begin to see colors with holograms of people and activity going on. A flash hits them and they find themselves in the present again. The novella and the TV adaptation end with the group happy to be back and going outside for some fresh air. <clears throat> that was a very, very lengthy introduction. Um, I mean, when I read the review for The Stand, uh, the Wikipedia summary isn't nearly as long as the Wikipedia summary for Langoliers. So, okay, this novella, it goes to really weird places. We just need to get that out of the way right away. I mean, in the novella, King explains that what happens to the past when it moves into the present, it's a fascinating concept. It's very heady, full of scientific, philosophical, and theological undertones. I think that if you locked in dozens of scientists, philosophers, religious leaders in a room to explore this possibility, not one of them would posit that giant balls of teeth would eat the past until there's nothing left. It's a bonkers, completely insane concept that is so over the top, it works. Whether it works in the TV miniseries starring Bulky Bartomeus is another topic altogether, but in this novella with King in the pilot seat, yes, I'd say that it does. And what's great about it is that King gets us the eventual reveal with the everyday idea of flying. It's a recognizable action that, bad turn of phrase, grounds the outrageousness of the Langoliers themselves. So the process of flying has changed since 1990. Our collective images of the plane, the takeoff, the landing, the airport, the pilot, turbulence, all of this has not changed. It allows for a recognizable reality that carries us to a strange new world, much in the way that the plane itself does for our characters. There's something so lived in with the world as soon as we're introduced to Brian Engel, our pilot, who you know has to be good at his job with the fact that his last name sounds like a mashup of Eagle and Angel. If anyone's going to keep a plane in the air, it's going to be that guy. Um, though he might be a pilot, he's the passenger we're going to follow for the duration of the novella. Hearing about his ex-wife's death, he has to fly um, as a passenger from LA to Boston, and while boarding, through his perspective, we spot a few of the passengers we'll get to know later on. 
The in-flight attendant mentions the Aurora Borealis of the um, Mojave Desert, something which we should all find strange and ominous. Almost immediately after, King spins a section through the perspective of Dinah, the blind girl, and it's a great touch. Her growing fear and her desperate attempts to apply logic to an illogical situation makes for a very tense scene. It's four pages in, um, I'm sorry, it's four pages with, with Dinah's scene that puts us in a nightmare situation. What if you were blind, fell asleep on a plane, and awoke with no evidence of life around you? What do you do? How do you even begin to try and formulate what you would do? One by one, King awakens his sleeping passengers, and we witness their realization that most of the other passengers are missing. The characters start bouncing off each other, King crafting them with enough traits early on to recognize the level-headed ones from the ones prone to being panic-stricken. And of the characters, um, the British one, and possibly named Nick Hopewell, is one of the ones that stands out from the rest. He demonstrates his coolness right away by shutting down the plane's resident blowhard, Craig Toomey. And it's an effective way for us to immediately like Nick for not hesitating to put this man in his place. Um, Nick continues to shine as our leader, um, you know, there to help navigate Brian through his near state of panic um, as he claims control of the cockpit. Jenkins and Albert discuss what might have happened, and King is able to explore aspects of mystery through Jenkins as he is a mystery writer. Though King is not a mystery writer in the eyes of the public, he nevertheless concocts mysteries, which always help propel the narratives. Horror will trump mystery, I suppose, but he tends to deal out misery as equally as horror. As the two characters follow the thread of Jenkins' logic, Toomey listens intently, and the reader should grow concerned that in this particular scenario, Engel is in on it. With Toomey as unbalanced as he is, we should worry greatly about the safety and well-being of our pilot. Though the premise of the novel is absurd, King sells it. And not only does he sell it, but I buy it completely. Especially because of scenes like Engel's descent into Bangor. At this point, neither the reader nor the characters know what lay below the clouds. So when Engel takes the plane into the clouds, he plunges them into an incredibly tense mystery. When they emerge from the clouds, King doesn't allow the characters to celebrate as he begins to show that something is wrong as the plane begins to land. We soon realize that there's no signs of life. Yeah, there might be buildings, there might be some evidence that life has existed, but no evidence that life is currently existing. As they explore the deserted airport, they all sense a deeper strangeness. There's no wind, no signs of life. Even the sounds don't sound the same. King presents this mystery and dares the audience to figure it out. Meanwhile, Jenkins hooks the reader further by advising Bethany to save her matches. How will this come into play? Again, we don't know, but King is clearly having a ball playing with us. Dinah reveals that she hears something. It's a great mystery that you can't wait to find out, and King does phenomenal work at doting it out one spoonful at a time, and he grounds it in a recognizable reality as the sound is described as popping Rice Krispies. The mystery is now... I'm sorry, the mystery now gives way to suspense. According to Dinah, they have to refuel quickly or else they're going to die. Of course, things aren't going to go too smoothly. Toomey knows this and grabs a gun. Soon, the others head to the restaurant to get a bite to eat, and Bob Jenkins, who is very reminiscent of the stands Glenn Bateman, uses the opportunity to test the suspicion that he's had of this empty world. When he asks Bethany to save her matches, it was for this moment where he performs a number of experiments that reveal that their dilemma is a lot stranger, with more severe implications than they had initially thought. King builds up this scene with 
food that has no taste, and matches that won't light when Toomey comes out of nowhere with a gun to hold Bethany hostage. Albert flies in for the save, and King writes um, that Toomey pulled the trigger. You immediately think that Albert's been shot, but in this world, things don't quite work that way. Thankfully, Albert has, for now at least, saved the day without hurting himself. King sits back and lets the characters bounce off each other. Um, you know, just as they, you know, seem to be accepting of this frozen world, they're also willing to put up with Toomey's antics. You know, Nick delivers a speech that puts everyone in their place and affirms Dinah's concerns. And then Bob Jenkins delivers a truth bomb that places our characters in a far, far, far more precarious situation. I think I mentioned a central fallacy in our thinking, he said at last. It is this. We all assumed when we began to grasp the dimensions of this event that something had happened to the rest of the world. That assumption is easy enough to understand since we are all fine and everyone else, including those other passengers with whom we boarded at Los Angeles International, seem to have disappeared. But the evidence before us does not bear the assumption out. What has happened has happened to us and us alone. I am convinced that the world as we have always known it is ticking along just fine as it always has. It's us, the missing passengers and the 11 survivors of Flight 29, who are lost. With that, King places his growing fantastical tale within a recognizable world of which we are more familiar, complete with tales of the Bermuda Triangle and small planes that have gone missing over the United States. It's a fun scene that works only for King's grasp of character and how to unfold a mystery. They begin to unravel the dilemma through action, with Albert's violin learning that the air all around them is flat. After Bob hypothesized that they're in the past, and that the past is in a state of existence that is dead and decaying, the passengers hear the crunching sound that Dinah had heard, coming closer. Again, King sells the mystery. If you started reading to find out what happened to the characters, now you're reading to find out what that noise is. At this point, it's clear that King had the idea for the name of the novella and had to work backwards to come up with an explanation for that name. That's the function of the scene between Dinah, Toomey, and Laurel, in which Toomey explains that the Langoliers are the dark little monsters of hair and teeth that run with a purpose because, after all, they're purpose personified. The novella speeds along in a rapid clip. King has established the rules to this game, the odorless world, the lack of life, the matches that won't burn, the flat beer, the tasteless food, the gun that won't shoot. The characters realize that there's no way they can fly back through a time rip, the jet fuel won't burn. And Albert realizes that they brought their own time, the present, with them into the past. Hope springs again, and King treats us to a scene where our characters begin to celebrate on the plane, which has carried the present to the past, open a beer only to reveal that it remains flat. This is King at his best, playing with the audience's emotions at every turn. Just when we think nothing will work, the glass bursts into bubbles, revealing that it takes a second for the past to catch up to the present. Things can't go smoothly, of course, as Toomey stabs Dinah, and it's up to Nick to provide triage. Knowing that the last handicapped character that King wrote off was killed, just because Nick has come to the rescue doesn't mean that he's going to be successful. King places us firmly in, in that scene, however, because with Nick's constant warning to Dinah to not cough, it makes me want to cough. It makes a tense scene that much more tense, because while we can't imagine the sensation of what it'd like to be stabbed in the chest, we can imagine what it's like to try and suppress a cough, and how 
how difficult that is. With that detail, King puts the danger entirely on the coughing rather than the knife. And just like that, we are that much more invested in the scene because he turned a completely unrelatable situation relatable. King interspaces the incredibly bloody scene of the knife extraction with an off-page confrontation between Albert and Toomey, if things couldn't get any worse. And just as Nick rushes off to kill Toomey, he is stopped by Dinah who explains that they need him alive. Why? We'll just have to keep reading. Does Albert fall beneath the blade of the madman Toomey? Nope. Albert manages to batter him nearly to death with a toaster wrapped with a tablecloth. It's such an inventive we uh, weapon, and I doubt I'll ever come across a situation exactly like this one again. As the characters get ready for a takeoff, they spot in the distance radio towers falling and the crunching of the trees breaking. Though the novella has been exciting since the get-go, this is what everyone has been waiting for. This is the climax. And King knows it, too. He builds up the reveal of the Langoliers with a flourish on the bottom of page 182. But Nick did not move. He was frozen in place, staring to the east. His skin had gone the color of paper. On his face was an expression of dreamlike horror. His upper lip trembled, and in that moment he looked like a dog that is too frightened to snarl. Brian turned his head slowly in that direction, hearing the tendons in his neck creak like a rusty spring on an old screen door as he did so. He turned his head and watched as the Langoliers finally entered stage left. Even though he builds it up perfectly, the Langoliers themselves is a bit of a letdown. Or they are a bit of a letdown. After nearly 200 pages of buildup, they appear in roughly five pages. They chew up Toomey and the passengers fly off. Though they escape the Langoliers, King doesn't ease up on the tension because just as Nick spots the time rip, Jenkins realizes that if they enter it while they're awake, they'll end up like the original passengers of their flight. After narrowly avoiding the rip, the characters now have less than an hour to figure out how to fall asleep. Albert figures that if Brian could lower the air pressure, um, but that would require someone to turn it back on in order for Brian to land the plane. It'll be Nick who explains to Laurel about the sins he needs to atone for, or as King writes, the red in his book which sounds very similar to what Joss Whedon would eventually write for Black Widow and Avengers with the red in my ledger line. And then King sends Laurel on, um, I'm sorry, King and Nick. So through, so King, I don't know why I'm messing this up so badly. Nick, Nick sends Laurel on a mission. There, simple. So Nick sends Laurel on a mission, um, one to happen in the future in order to make amends for the sins in the past. Uh, King plays with time travel again. It's a nice moment, and the big moments of Nick's life, uh, the church in Belfast, the daisies, um, all of these are hinted at. King has a reputation and a habit for over-explaining every moment of a character's life, which is so refreshing that the life of this mysterious character is kept mysterious even to the end. Nick's sacrifice through the rip allows Brian to land the plane, but King keeps the tensions high, as the world is just as deserted as it had been before, but not exactly the same way. Bob realized that they didn't return to the present, but to the future that's waiting to be born. And again, King takes this abstract concept and turns it into something recognizable. 
For a moment longer, the wide circle of the boarding lounge remained deserted, a place haunted by the voices and footsteps of the not-quite-living, and Brian thought, I'm going to see it happen. I'm going to see the moving present lock onto the stationary future and pull it along, the way hooks on a moving express train used to snatch bags of mail from the Postal Service poles standing by the tracks in sleepy little towns down south and out west. I'm going to see time itself open like a rose on a summer morning. It's an incredibly hopeful ending, with each of the characters more conscientious of the time they have, and they've dedicated to enjoying the present. For Brian, who lived in the present in a fog, haunted by his past, and Laurel, who similarly wasn't truly living in the present and placed all of her hopes into a future she know wouldn't come true, they've come through this better people. It's nice and all, um, but it reads like the ending to a parody of an action movie, where the characters are now best friends forever and head out together. I mean, Brian says, I know what time it is. It's half past now. And then they all literally run towards the conclusion of the novel. It's not a huge complaint, but it's a little on the nose. So um, I'm just going to talk about the characters now. And the first uh, I need to talk about is Nick. All right. James Bond travels through time. That could very easily have been the pitch for this book. And with Nick, that's what we get. He's an incredibly fun character, he's cool, confident, and not at all the everyman character that has populated Stephen King's books until this point. This man is a specialist whose skills put him on par with Jack Reacher or Repairman Jack or any other adventurous character that you can find in the fiction aisle of your local bookstore. He's a great character that King is clearly having fun with. I was very upset when he died um, the first time around um, as he went through the time rip because he's a character that I would have loved to have seen more adventures of. Now let's talk about Toomey. King clearly loves the character of Toomey. I don't know what it is about this type of character, that alpha male who goes insane. You know, maybe King just resents the baby boomers who sold out their youthful ideals and traded in their protest signs for a corner office. I don't know what it is, but King loves tearing this guy down. And by guy, I mean the alpha male sociopath. The blowhard that blew too hard, he popped a few too many brain cells. Toomey's defining characteristic is his constant shredding of cocktail, cocktail napkins. It's a wonderful visual representation of his deep-seated anger. And King provides Toomey with a wonderful explanation on page 56. Deep in the trenches carved into the floors of the Pacific and the Indian Oceans, there are fish which live and die without ever seeing or sensing the sun. These fabulous creatures cruise the depths like ghostly balloons, lit from within by their own radiance. Although they look delicate, they are actually marvels of biological design built to withstand pressures that would squash a man as flat as a window pane in the blink of an eye. Their great strength, however, is also their great weakness. Prisoners of their own alien bodies, they are locked forever in their dark depths. If they are captured and drawn towards the surface, towards the sun, they simply explode. It's not external pressure that destroys them, but it's absence. Craig Toomey had been raised in his own dark trench, had lived in his own atmosphere of high pressure. His father had been an executive in the Bank of America, away from home for long stretches of time, a caricature type A overachiever. He drove his only child as furiously and as unforgivingly as he drove himself. The bedtime stories he told Craig in Craig's early years terrified the boy. Nor was this surprising because terror was exactly the emotion Roger Toomey meant to awaken in the boy's breast. These tales concerned themselves for most part with a race of monstrous beings called the Langoliers. You know, and he goes on 
but it's just incredible that that and and he expands on it so it makes for an extended metaphor of of just craig being this deep sea creature living under the the pressure and and just even though he takes place um he lives on the same planet as the rest of us he's completely alien um you know as for the langoliers it makes as much sense as any and ultimately it doesn't matter where the name came from uh, we just need the name of the monsters to stick king does a phenomenal job at providing us craig toomey's dilemma and how much of a pressure cooker uh, this character is, you know, with everything to lose, he's about to blow. And when he does, he's so much more dangerous than the Langoliers. His insanity manifests um, as the narcissistic delusion that he's the variable of the experiment. He's convinced himself is responsible for this. By justifying that everyone else is in on it, he convinces himself that he's real and they aren't. And this is dangerous thinking as it puts the lives of the fellow passengers in great danger as any harm to them won't seem like reality to this time bomb. Now we have Dinah. For a novel about time-eating balls of teeth, it's strange to say that a little blind girl is too much. It's not that she's blind, of course. It's that she's psychic. And through her dying energy, she's able to lure Toomey to the runway via astral projection so that he can distract the Langoliers enough for the rest of them to escape. The Dinah attack and fallout, though masterfully done and suspenseful, feels very plot-driven, as if King knew that there were certain beats he needed to hit, but wasn't quite sure how to hit them. The end result is a clunky series of scenes, clunky only because if you're looking for it, you can see the seams. Now, this is an issue, if you really think about it. Um, if a writer presents a loaded gun earlier in the story, you can expect it to go off. If he or she presents a bomb... You should grow tense, wondering when it's going to explode. You know, they present clear-cut possibilities. Because the author can trace the setup to the conclusion in the form of a prediction, it allows the characters to function within the perimeter of an understandable possibility. King, however, presents a loaded bomb in the form of a blind girl and a crazy alpha male. King cryptically teases us that Toomey will be needed for the end of the novel, but we never know why until that end, and how could we? We can't trace the logic from the proclamations of a dying blind psychic to the coming of the Langoliers. The logic doesn't hold up. A bomb will go off. A gun will fire. These are concepts that make sense. Waiting for the bullet or the explosion is the source of the tension. Over here, it feels very unearned because rather than clear-cut logic, we don't have an explosion but a blind girl asshole projecting herself so that the crazy boardroom maniac wanders into the runway so that the Langoliers will eat him in order for the plane to take off. Even within that scenario, the logic doesn't hold up. The Langoliers are so destructive, they would have consumed Toomey almost immediately, so what purpose did, did Dinah serve at all, really? So, I like the Langoliers, but that really stood out um, for me uh, here. Now, I just want to talk a little bit about time, because the, the, all the collections here are about time. So, on page 86, King writes, Time? Craig screamed at him suddenly. What in the hell do you know about time? Ask me. Ask me. I know about time. I know all about time. Time is short, sir. Time is very effing short. And then he just kind of freaks out again and screams that time is short as hell. Now, as stated earlier, the basis of this collection is to examine the fluidity 
um, nature of time. So when you take King's introduction into context, it's not hard to imagine Toomey in this scene as a manic version of Stephen King. His character brutally and bluntly getting to the point in just a couple sentences what it took the author to get across here in 700. Aside from the fact that The Langoliers is a story that includes time as an integral aspect of the plot, he also plays with time with each of the characters. Brian is a man flying into the future, but simultaneously wrapped up in his past. Laurel's future was cut short with this plane ride. Toomey's introduction comes with pages-long look into his past, so wrapped up in his father's teachings that it shouldn't come as a surprise that he dies quite literally in the past. King touches upon it again, specifically with Laurel, not living in the present, afraid of the future. Brian, not living in the present, haunted by the past. So, um... It's just, it's fun to see King playing with time and making these comments on time. Now, I'm going to get into the part of the Stephen King cast where I discuss the, the Easter eggs, which is references to other Stephen King works. So the first one comes not in the Langoliers, but it comes earlier um, in the introduction. That's when Stephen King refers to the white. Um, as I stated earlier, the white is that all-consuming force of good that's there to combat the, the, the evil um, forces out there in Stephen King works. And um, with him refer, no, no, I was going to, there's a Dark Tower reference in there. So um, having to do with Stephen King as an author discussing the white in his own life. So if you've read the, St then if you've read the Dark Tower, then you know where I'm going with this. If not, read the Dark Tower. Um, number two is the shop. Um, Mr. Jenkins, the Mr. Right, the mystery writer suggests that the shop had taken everyone. The shop was uh, an organization that King wrote about most famously in Firestarter. Um, and <gasps> what you're being rude. That's rude. Um, it was most famously presented in the Firestarter book, um, but also popped up in the Tommyknockers, um, and on screen it uh, also appeared in the Lawnmower Man, a movie so bad that Stephen King uh, sued the company to to get his name off of it. Uh, and the shop rumor is that the will be the um, the title for the Firestar Firestar sequel series that will take place years later um, with Charlie McGee on the run from a new uh, version of the shop, which I think will be great. Now we have Stephen Kingisms. Stephen Kingisms are our um, tricks and traits and tropes of Stephen King's works. Um, the first of which is the prophetic dream. Brian has a prophetic dream, and this is a Stephen King trope that we see in nearly every Stephen King work. Uh, number two is laughing at an unfunny joke. Nick and Brian, after having just met, start cracking up of a, cracking up over a joke that was delivered by Nick. Um, number three is the alpha male losing his sanity. We see that with uh, Danforth, Buster Keaton, Greg Stilson, Big Jim Rendy, uh, Randall Flagg himself. Um, number four is, uh, sleep, saving the passengers on a trip. This has been seen before with the jaunt. Number five is the psychic child. Dinah can see and sense things. We've seen this before with Joe from the stand, Danny from the shining. Number six is the writer character. Um, Mr. Jenkins is the mystery author who happens to be a long line of writers in King's works, which includes Ben Mears, Jack Torrance, uh, Paul Sheldon, um, Bobby Anderson, Jim Gardner, Bill Denbro, and the list goes on. Tolkien reference is number seven. 
Um, and I don't know how I let this one slip past me for 50 episodes, but um, I started really talking about it more with the stand review. Um, but one of King's most notable influences is uh, J.R.L. Tolkien. Number eight is Disappearing Settlers. In the Langoliers, King refers to the Lost Colony of Roanoke. He's referred to the Lost Settlements, um, to Lost Settlements in Salem's Lot, in It, and Storm of the Century. Number nine is 112263. This is King's most famous time travel story. Um, and in it, a man travels back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination. Um, that concept is referred to here. Number 10 is a structural, uh, text structural, structural, um, Stephen Kingism, and that is parentheses breaking up the narrative to reveal character thought. Number 11 is comparing time and space to a rose. Any Dark Tower fan will recognize that. And our catchphrase, shooting stars only. Stephen King loves his catchphrases, whether it be my life for you, they all float down here, come out and take your medicine, they're all going to laugh at you. Um... How you like that, happy crappy? Uh, so, I mean, the list goes on and on. Okay, guys, uh, this is all that I have right now for The Langoliers. It's a very, very fun novella. Um, one that I, I really enjoy. The premise is insane. It should not work, and yet somehow it does uh, because King, he manages to make it work. He makes the fantastic um, function due to the fact that he grounds us with very very relatable characters and a alpha male that is just so over the top it's fun to see what's what's coming to him so I strongly recommend the, the Langoliers I am now going to be the, the next uh, review in order of um, the podcast will be the Langoliers ABC TV miniseries so um, you can just jump on over and listen to that or if you just want to keep on going with the four past midnight stories stay tuned for um, Secret Window, Secret Garden. And everyone, if you have not done so already, feel free to subscribe and write a review on iTunes. That would really help me out immensely. And um, you can always write into StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And I will see you all here, same King time, same King channel, Stephen KingCast. I'm leaving on a jet plane Don't know when I to go